0: Welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we're going to a wonderland of granite. We're going to tackle the most iconic feature and, separately, another feature that has the best view – of one of the most visited and beautiful valleys in one of America's signature national parks. Both of these highlights can be reached by grueling day hikes, and most of the people who reach them do it that way. But this isn't a podcast about day hikes. And why not take two grueling day hikes and turn them into a wonderful, actually quite leisurely, three-day backpacking trip where you can see the highlights but still avoid the crowds? On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we go to Yosemite National Park in California and we visit Half Dome and we visit Clouds Rest. My wife, Andy, and I have been taking our kids to Yosemite since they were very little. In fact, the first time we took them, our daughter, Sonia, was two, and Andy was pregnant with our son, Justin. After that, we took them several times to go camping, often with our good friends, the Kinsel family. And the Kinsels have two kids in the same age range, and so it was always fun to camp with them in Yosemite. As any of you who have been to Yosemite Valley know, it's hard not to see Half Dome. It's a massive granite dome that, as its name implies, looks like it was sliced in half, towering over Yosemite Valley. And so it began when our son Justin was around three. He told us, that's my rock, and said that someday he wanted me to take him to the top. Keep in mind that we are not a family of climbers. We're backpackers and campers. So there was no chance we were doing anything crazy, like scaling the face of Half Dome. But every day in the summer, hundreds of people climb the cables that the park surface has put up that goes up one side of Half Dome. So I knew it was something we could do, uh, but for a long time, we never did. Well, why didn't we do it? There were a lot of reasons. The biggest was probably me and my reluctance to do it. Uh, I love the remote backcountry, and the vast majority of people who hike Half Dome do it on a 16-mile round-trip, grueling day hike. And frankly, I had no interest in doing that. And so it would have to be a backpacking trip. But there are so many trips that I wanted to do, and going up Half Dome just wasn't anywhere near the top of my list. I have to admit that I thought Half Dome was basically amateur hour, and the masses that swarm Yosemite Valley in the summer are the people who end up hiking it as a day hike, And I saw it as sort of a waste of time for a hardy backpacker. Also, I knew that it was difficult to get permits. And for quite a while, also, the kids were pretty young. And so doing something like Half Dome wasn't realistic at their age. And then when they got to early teen years, they just sort of stopped asking about it. And we started doing bigger and bigger backpacking trips. And so maybe it became less appealing. So for their entire childhoods, we didn't do it. We didn't climb Half Dome. Then a couple of years ago, my daughter, Sonia, asked to do it. By this time, she was in college. And I was just happy she still wanted to go backpacking with me. I'd been taking her on backpacking trips with just her in the summer since she started college. And she was getting into, I guess it was her coming into her junior year of college. And she wanted to do this trip. And because Justin had always wanted to do it, I invited him to go. You know, of course, I said, yes, let's do it. And by this point, I guess I wasn't so sour on Half Dome, and I thought, look, it's probably worth doing once. Everybody who goes up there says how great it is, so let's do it. And so I got a permit for September 2020. But that turned out to be one of the worst wildfire months we'd ever seen, and we had to cancel the trip. The air quality was so bad, they actually closed Yosemite during the dates of our reservation. But then this year, in 2021, I tried again. This time I made the reservation for July, which I thought would be after the mosquitoes, but before the wildfires. But there was one more thing. Half Dome is iconic and stunning and begs to be climbed, but it's not even the best view of Yosemite National Park. Several miles behind it, and more than a thousand feet higher in elevation, is Clouds Rest. Clouds Rest has a stunning 360-degree view of a huge swath of the park all the way through Yosemite Valley to the west, and to the crest of the Sierra beyond Tuolumne Meadows to the east. Clouds Rest is another hike most people do as a pretty long day hike. It's close to the distance of the Half Dome hike. It's around 15 or a little over 15 miles round trip. But looking at a map made it pretty clear that you could easily connect these two iconic peaks on a weekend backpacking trip. So why not bag both in one weekend, avoid having to pound out two really hard day hikes, and enjoy a few days in Yosemite's backcountry. So that's what we did. I designed a route to see both uh, Half Dome and Clouds Rest. It's a point-to-point route, more downhill than uphill, though there's a fair amount of uphill, particularly when you include the two hikes to the top of the two peaks. The hike starts near Tenaya Lake and goes up and over Clouds Rest on the first day, and then after you leave the summit of Cloud's Rest, you come down and camp near the junction with the trail that goes up to Half Dome. And then you can do Half Dome as a day hike, but as a much easier day hike than if you were to start in Yosemite Valley, or even if you were to start at the backpacking camp in Little Yosemite Valley. And then the last day, you just hike out down to Yosemite Valley, down to Happy Isles and Curry Village, and catch up with the, the rest of the tourists who are there to see the valley. But before we talk about the hike, let's talk a little bit about the background of this area. Let's start way back with the geology of this area. And as you may know from uh, episode number two about the High Sierra Trail, or if you just have some knowledge about the, the Sierra Nevada, the Sierra Nevada Batholith is a 400 mile block of granite, block of igneous rock that was formed as molten rock underground and hardened, and was later uplifted by plate tectonics and then exposed by erosion of the dirt above it. After that, the granite was carved by glaciers and water. Granite is really good at holding water. Today, there are actually more than 3,200 lakes in the Sierra and 1,700 miles of streams, which is about 2,700 kilometers Yosemite Valley is a dramatic U-shaped, glacially carved canyon, and the Merced River runs down the middle. Though naturalist John Muir thought Hetch Hetchy, where there's now a reservoir, was as beautiful, if not more, about Yosemite Valley, Muir said, No temple made with hands can compare with Yosemite. Every rock in its wall seems to glow with life. Yosemite Valley also has El Capitan, El Cap, a giant block of granite famous for its many climbing routes. It has a number of waterfalls. Yosemite Falls is the highest waterfall in North America at 2425 feet of drop, which is 739 meters. There's also Ribbon Falls, Bridalveil Falls, Vernal Falls, and Nevada Falls. There are still glaciers in the park though not in the valley, and they are small and disappearing quickly. Let's talk a bit about Half Dome itself. Half Dome rises 4,737 feet above the valley floor. That's 1,444 meters. Although it does look like a Half Dome, geologically it's actually 80% still there, and the sort of Half Dome look to it is really an optical illusion. Rather than being half a dome, it's actually an arete, which is a thin ridge of rock separating two glacial valleys. So in other words, it's a big point of rock sticking up that was glaciated on both sides. Clouds Rest is also an arete, and it's at almost 10,000 feet in elevation, which is about 3,000 meters. Yosemite Valley in the Yosemite area has been inhabited for nearly 3,000 years at least. The native inhabitants were the Awanechi, who were related to the Northern Paiute and Mono tribes. In the 1850s, particularly the early 1850s, at the time of the California Gold Rush, thousands of European Americans came to the region. And this led to the Mariposa Wars to suppress the natives. These wars were essentially designed to get natives relocated to reservations. California put together a state militia called the Mariposa Battalion, that was about 200 men, led by a scout named James Savage. And during the Mariposa Wars, Savage and his men went after the Awanechi. The Awanechi themselves were a feared tribe. By the Miwok, they were called the Yoemiti, which meant they are killers. And this is the origin of the word Yosemite. In any event, sickness destroyed most of the Awanechi. And after sickness had destroyed A good portion of the tribe, the Mariposa Battalion, showed up in the valley. The leader of the Awanechi was Tanaya. And first they went peacefully, but as they were approaching the reservation in the Fresno area, they fled and they went back to the valley. The battalion captured the youngest son of Tanaya and killed him. Then eventually Tanaya went back to the reservation, but later again he fled back to the valley. And eventually, he was actually stoned to death in a dispute with the Paiutes over stolen horses, and that was in 1853. After he died, the group dispersed from the valley, and today, Tenaya Lake, near Tuolumne Meadows, is named after him. And that's right about where the hike we are going to talk about starts. So next, let's talk about how this area became protected. In 1855, entrepreneurs began coming, and they publicized the valley. By 1864, there was concern over protecting the area, and that led to the Yosemite Grant, which protected the area by giving it to the state of California. The goal was to protect Yosemite Valley and also the Mariposa Grove of giant sequoias. And this was a pretty unique thing. It was the first protection legislation of its kind. In 1864, there weren't any national parks yet in the United States or the world. In 1872, Yellowstone became the first national park. And it was also California's first state park. There was no state park system up to this point either. At that point, stage roads were built and tourists began coming in growing numbers. John Muir lobbied Congress extensively. He was concerned about sheep overgrazing, logging, and the increasing visitation. And his efforts ultimately led to federal protection. I want to stop for a moment and recognize that Muir had pretty abhorrent views on race, and those views tarnish his name to this day. But for the purposes of this podcast, we're talking about his views on conservation and his efforts on conservation, which were unparalleled and paid off enormously for protecting this area. While he may have had some terrible faults, uh, he he was certainly competent and worthy of praise in his efforts as a conservationist. So with that, let's continue. In 1890, Yosemite National Park was created. This included the broader wilderness and high country, not just Yosemite Valley and the Mariposa Grove. But at that time, the valley and the Mariposa Grove actually stayed under California state control, and Muir and others kept lobbying for federal protection. One interesting thing about this, at the time, they brought in the army to protect the area, and this included the all-black Ninth Cavalry who were known as the Buffalo Soldiers. And the the Army cavalrymen who came in wore these round, peaked hats. And today, this is the style of hat that park rangers in the United States still wear. In any event, in 1903, there was a watershed moment when Teddy Roosevelt, then president, came to Yosemite to go camping with John Muir. And they camped near Glacier Point overlooking the valley. And they also camped in the Mariposa Grove. And there's an iconic photo that I'm sure many of you have seen of Teddy Roosevelt with John Muir at Glacier Point. And that camping trip really did it. In 1906, Roosevelt created a law that returned the valley and the Mariposa Grove to federal protection as part of the park. And so it was no longer under California's protection and instead was under the federal government's protection. All right, so that's a little history on the park itself. Let's talk about the history of. Yosemite's most famous residence. It's bears. Whenever you tell somebody you're going backpacking in the Sierra, the first thing they say is, did you see any bears? Aren't you afraid of the bears? So I thought it's worth talking a little bit about the history of bears in Yosemite, since they are such an integral part of the Yosemite experience even today. Originally, there were both grizzly and black bears in Yosemite, though the last grizzly bear was killed in 1895. In the early 1900s, Tourists brought a lot of trash when they came in to visit Yosemite, and that required a dump. So, eventually the bears finding food scraps in the dump started feeding there, and then people started going to the dump to see the bears. And did authorities decide to fix the trash situation and put up a fence to keep humans and bears out? Nope. This is America, folks. They built bleachers, they put up spotlights, and they bust people in to see the bears. Sometimes there were 20 to 30 bears at a time feeding in the trash heap. And this brought more bears out of the wilderness and more calories from human food, allowed more reproduction, and thus even more bears. And as you can imagine, people eventually got too close and injuries started to happen in encounters between the people and the bears. So in the 1940s, the feeding shows ended. And by the 1970s, the dump was closed. But this led to bears conditioned to human food raiding campgrounds and cars. And unfortunately for a while, this meant euthanizing a lot of bears. And eventually backpackers started losing their food to bears too. And there were some pretty dangerous encounters that happened in the backcountry. So food storage systems started to develop. First, there was bear bagging. And this was tried for a long time. And bear bagging is basically hanging food from a tree branch in a bag, using a rope to get it up into the tree. But most people weren't very good at bear bagging or diligent at hanging the bags far enough away from the bears. And bears in Yosemite learned to tackle the bags and pull them down, sometimes by jumping from the branches. And I've even heard stories about mom bears teaching cubs to go up and get the bags on branches where the mother would have been too heavy to walk out on that branch. In any event, in campgrounds and parking lots, bear lockers were installed. And there are even bear lockers in some popular backcountry spots, Um, particularly as I discussed in episode two, there are quite a few bear lockers along the High Sierra Trail in Sequoia National Park. But the main solution that now is used and works is bear canisters. And they are required in Yosemite if you're in the backcountry. And a bear canister is essentially a hard-sided can out of a plastic or carbon fiber or metal or some material, there's a few different brands that do combinations of these. The idea is you put your food in there and the bear can't open it, even if the bear can smell it and see it. Bear canisters are bulky and hard to carry, but you have to use them and you should use them because they work. Everything scented goes inside the canister, not just food. And let's be honest, folks, a lot of times you're going to be on a trip that is longer than one where a bear canister will fit all the food. Once upon a time, I did see a guy carrying two bear canisters in the same backpack, but most of us aren't going to do that. So what if all the stuff, all the food, all the scented stuff like sunblock doesn't fit inside the bear can? Well, the rule in Yosemite is everything has to go in the bear can. But I'll tell you what you might hypothetically do if not everything fits. Not saying I ever did this, but you could buy an Ursac, which is a soft-sided bag made out of Kevlar, essentially a bulletproof type bag. Everything in that bag can get horribly smashed by a bear, but the bear still can't get it open. You, you basically put everything in this bag, tie it shut and tie it around a tree with a figure eight knot. So when the bear pulls on it, it gets tighter and can't come off. And believe me, it works. I have been in places where it is appropriate to use ursacs where they don't require canisters and had bears try to pull them apart. And while a bear can get its teeth and claws through the side of the bag, they can't tear it apart and they can't get it off the tree, although they can smash everything inside of it. And so you do have to be thoughtful if you're going to use it as a sort of overflow bag as to what you might put in there. For example, it's certainly a good place to put trash. As I mentioned, you can use the ursac in some areas. That's primarily in wilderness areas that are not in Yosemite or Sequoia National Park or King's Canyon National Park. So basically, in the national parks, you need a bear can. And in other places, you can use an Ursack. But I, I can tell you from experience, I don't trust the ursacs anymore. Not because, as I said, not because the bear can get the food, but because the bear can destroy it. We took our dog on a trip, and the ursac had dog food, peanut butter, toothpaste. And after the bear smashed it and pulled at it and put its teeth in the into the thing... All of those things were mixed together with an added uh, dose of bear spit, which is not how you want to eat your food even if the bear wasn't able to actually get the food. So at the end of the day, an ursac can save you from allowing the bear to get hurt or allowing the bear to be conditioned to human food, but it may end your trip still if a bear destroys what's in the ursac. So I say get a bear can and don't look back. There are some fairly cheap brands, Bear Vault, is one brand that's fairly cheap and has two sizes, a smaller can, which is great for a weekend trip and not very heavy, and a bigger one for two people or a longer trip. The top shelf lightweight brand is Barricade. That's what I use. They're expensive, more than twice the cost of the Bear Vaults, but they work and they're quite a bit lighter. They're made out of carbon fiber in the middle and the ends are, I don't even know, some kind of metal. I think aluminum. One problem with bear cans is they don't fit well in lightweight backpacks. If you have a full size, you know, huge REI style backpack, they'll fit fine sideways. But in most lightweight backpacks that people like me use and, and more and more people these days use, they don't really fit well. For a decade, I carried one vertically in a lightweight backpack and it was always a hassle. It was always on one side. It really was hard to deal with. Um, but a few months ago, when I was planning for this season, it occurred to me how to solve this problem. It practically came to me in a dream, or when I had just woken up and was half awake. And it occurred to me that the best way to do this would be to strap the bear can to the pack outside the pack. Now, thru-hikers who hike big trails do this, but they often empty the can and then put the can on top of their pack and strap it down with a top strap. So they carry the food in the pack And then at night, they put the food into the bear can. Technically, you're not supposed to do this. You're supposed to keep the food in the bear can at all times. But it works because if you left a full can of food on top, it'd be pretty lopsided weight-wise. Maybe you could do it with less food. But it doesn't seem like an ideal solution to me. I haven't tried it, so maybe it does work just fine. I don't know. Um, But it occurred to me that the best way to carry it would be on the bottom of the pack, where you normally want to carry the heavy stuff anyway. So I did some research online and found out that such a pack as I was dreaming about actually existed and had just been designed and come on the market. And that's the NunaTech Bears Ears 50. So of course, I immediately bought one. It's a frameless, lightweight pack with only a little foam piece for the back frame. The bear can straps on the bottom. And because of the way the bear can straps on, the waist belt actually rotates fully up and down, which gives you flexibility in the way the weight of the pack carries. And I, and I have to say, I love this pack. It rides easily. It doesn't feel like you're carrying the amount of weight that you're carrying with a full bear can. And this trip that we're talking about today in Yosemite was the second time I'd used this pack. And um, I can say that I will use it when I'm in bear country going forward, or at least a pack like it, if others decide to start making packs like this, because it really does solve the problem of what to do with the bear can. So, Getting back to the bears in Yosemite, they're still no joke. They can be worse in campgrounds than in the backcountry. There are bear-proof lockers and trash cans, but there are lots of stories of bears tearing doors off of cars. Uh, When our kids were young, this actually happened to a friend of ours. They went to Yosemite with a minivan, and it was a brand new minivan, and they'd actually taken out everything that was food-like out of the car. But they left the kids' car seats. The kids were young enough to have car seats at the time. And they left the kids' car seats in the car. And I guess bears, or at least this particular bear, knew from experience that car seats equal food. Kids drop Cheerios and other things into the car seat and they kind of get into the cracks. And I guess this bear knew that or smelled what was left of some kind of residue of food and tore the car apart to get into it to get into the car seats even with no food in the car. So that's something that happened to a friend of ours. I was once in a campground in Yosemite Valley, and at the site next to us, a guy with a beer cooler had eaten all the food and beer out of the cooler, so there was no actual food or beer in the cooler, but he had left it full of empty beer cans and left the cooler out. And you even need to put the coolers in the the bear lockers that they provide at campsites because a bear came through that night and knew that a cooler equaled food and dumped it all over. And in the middle of the night, there were empty beer cans flying everywhere. The risk to your safety with bears is pretty low. They generally run the other way when they see people. Um, But the risk with bears regarding getting into your food is very high. And so you've got to be smart And I hope that this discussion gives you some ideas uh, on what to do right. And there's a ton of information online and every park website uh, in this area in California for Sequoia, Kings Canyon, and Yosemite has lots of information on how to stay safe from the bears. If you don't want to fly all the way out here and buy a bear can, if you're someone coming from far away, they do rent them. So the park service will rent a bear can to you. Um, But the easiest thing to do is to go to somewhere like REI and buy one. All right. So let's talk about the Half Dome and Clouds Rest hike. First, this is primarily a summer hike. And there are several factors that go into the timing. And I mentioned some of them earlier. So let's start with you need to be late enough in the season where there's no snow. This is not too terribly hard for this hike. It's not as high as a lot of the high Sierra hikes that I'll talk about on the show for example it's not as high up as the high sierra trail that i talked about previously or the benson lake loop so that probably only means waiting till about june but often early in the season there are horrible mosquitoes in the sierra so i tend to wait a little longer let the mosquitoes come and go or get to a higher elevation or just sort of simmer down so they're not so much of a problem but as i found out last year if you wait too long into the season Into September and October, and these days it can be even earlier, unfortunately, there's a risk of wildfires ruining your trip. And obviously, a big part of this trip is climbing Half Dome. The cables that they put up to allow you to climb Half Dome, to make it easier to climb it, are up from Memorial Day to Columbus Day. So they're up from late May to mid-October, essentially. And so that's when you could do the trip. We hiked it in mid-July, and that was perfect. So I would say basically July, August, September, and even into the first week or two of October is possible if you keep an eye on the weather and for potential snowstorms. Standard mountain backpacking gear works for the trip. As I said, you need a bear can. You need water filtration. The only piece of gear that is unusual for this trip that you need is a pair of gardening gloves. And that is for the cables on Half Dome. When you go up the cables there's a rope burn effect that can happen as you slide your hands up and down um, as you're climbing or descending. Bringing a pair of gardening gloves can really make a difference. So I recommend you do that. On this trip, we stayed in the same campsite for two nights, which allowed us to bring some luxury items. On most backpacking trips, I'm moving every day, particularly on longer routes. And so I don't bring many sort of camp-like items. But on this one, we brought both a hammock And a a light folding chair, one of those Helinox chairs that are super light. It's about one pound, I think, Um, but makes a great little camp chair. And the hammock was amazing. We had a pretty lightweight hammock that we strung up in our site. There was always somebody of the four of us in that hammock. For navigation, use the Tom Harrison Half Dome map. I've talked about Tom Harrison maps before. They're fantastic for wherever he makes maps uh, they're great recreational maps, perfect for backpacking. And there's one, there's one particularly for the Half Dome area. To get to Yosemite National Park, it's about a three and a half hour drive from the Bay Area. It's a bit longer from Los Angeles. Uh, you can take uh, public transportation. There is a bus system that can get you there, but that'll take a lot longer. I would even consider renting a car if you're short on time and coming from out of town. If you want to do this trip. Because you're only going to be on the trip for a few days, so maybe it's actually even worth it to do that if time is more important to you than money. Outside of the park, we like the town of Groveland on the way in. It's a cute little town, a few decent little restaurants, good place to stop for food on the way in or the way out. If you're, if you're coming from San Francisco or going back toward the San Francisco area, if you're going toward Los Angeles, it's a different way and you won't go through Groveland. You go through Mariposa instead. Okay. The best thing to do to set up for this hike is to come the day before. And there are two backpacker campgrounds in Yosemite National Park. And the way this works is if you have a permit to go backpacking the next day, or you had a permit that was for up to that day, you can stay in these backpacker campgrounds without having a reservation, without having to worry about the hassle of months and months in advance, trying to get a campsite in Yosemite. And they're great. They're $5 per person per night. So for us, you know, 20 bucks for a group, or maybe it's up to $6 now. I think it actually might've been up to $6, might've gone up in price. Somehow that seems right. And so what we did is we stayed in Tuolumne Meadows Backpacker Campground, which was close to the starting point for our hike, close to Tenaya Lake. And at higher elevation, it turned out it ended up being a really high temperature, hot weekend. Uh, when we went, so it was actually much nicer to stay at a higher elevation, get acclimated to the elevation, and also it was just much cooler than down in the valley where the other backpacker campground is. After the hike, I always recommend the Curry Village Pizza Place for a little celebratory lunch. That's what we did. And pretty much what we do every time we go to Yosemite is sit out on the patio there and have a pizza, which is a good thing to do. Getting permits for this hike, like any hike in Yosemite, is very tough. I think the way the system works, but confirm it and go online and check. But I I think it's 168 days in advance. You can reserve your permit and every day that advances the date. So it's not like it's a month to month thing It's literally 168 days in advance. And the next day, you know, the next spot, the next date opens up and the next date and so on. So you really need to try each day in the sort of window where you're hoping to get a permit. The easiest way to do it is to avoid starting on a Friday or a Saturday. We started our hike on a Sunday, which actually works out pretty well because then you can come in on a Saturday and spend the night at the backpacker camp on Saturday. So it's still basically a weekend plus a couple days if you do it that way. You have to check the box for the Half Dome permit when you apply, saying that you want a permit for Half Dome. You pay an extra $10 per person when you arrive, but really the key is to make sure you request that in the permit application. Because if you don't, you don't get to go up Half Dome. I think I mentioned already, but this is really a three-day trip. You could do it in two days. You could go up Clouds Rest the first day and spend the night and then go up Half Dome and then hike down to Yosemite Valley. That would work just fine. But, but why do that? Why not spend more time in the backcountry? So we did it as a three-day trip and spent two nights in the same backcountry campsite, which I recommend. Getting to and from trailheads, if you do it as a point-to-point, there's two ways to do that. One is to bring two cars. That's what we did. So like a lot of point-to-point shuttle trips, you can bring one car, put it at one end, put another car at the other end. So we dropped a car in Yosemite Valley and then drove up to the Sunrise Trailhead up by Tenaya Lake and started the hike there after staying up in 12 Meadows the night before. The reason we did two cars is that the shuttle bus that's typically open and is free was closed in 2021 due to continuing COVID restrictions. But I have a feeling that if you do this in future years, the shuttle service will be back open. And that is probably the easiest way to do this with one car. So you leave a car in Yosemite Valley, then you could take the shuttle up to Sunrise Trailhead or all the way to Tuolumne Meadows, and then back down to Sunrise Trailhead the next day to start the hike. In any event, the shuttle system in Yosemite is pretty good, works well, is free, and you should use it if it's available. Unfortunately, this year it wasn't. All right, so let's talk about the itinerary and go through the hike. But before we do that, let's listen to some discussion among my family the night before the trip when we were in Tuolumne Meadows Backpacker Campground, thinking about what we were about to undertake. Sonia, where are we going this weekend?
1: Half Dome! And um, Cloud's Rest.
0: (laughs) And how long have you wanted to do Half Dome?
1: Since Justin was three.
0: (laughs) So we're finally gonna do it, right? Yeah. Okay. We're gonna
1: crush it. It's gonna be fun.
0: You excited about that?
1: I'm a little nervous. It's gonna be scary at the top, but also like, I feel like very gratifying.
0: Cool. It's a long
1: time in the making.
0: I hear ya. It is a little nerve-wracking to go up something like that.
2: Yeah, the cables. Ah. The, that part's gonna be a little sketchy.
0: It's not gonna be as scary probably as that climb we did oh, a couple of years ago. Oh, Kern. Yeah, uh, Caness. Caness. Mount
1: Caness. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez, yeah, that one was crazy. <laughs> that one was fun. It was fun. It was crazy, but it was fun.
2: So why are we here, Justin? We're here to climb Half Dome okay. and Clouds Rest <laughs> in, that order, in, that, in that order, but not in that order. <laughs> In yeah, that in order, order of how much that, I'm excited for it.
0: <laughs> in that order, meaning when you were a little kid, you said, I want to climb that mountain. Uh-huh. And my rock. You said it was your rock. It's my rock. And now you're 18. <laughs> yeah. Your sister's 21. Yeah. And we're finally here. Yeah. And we've done how many backpacking trips between then and now, probably?
2: Okay, at least like two or three. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, 20? 20, 20 maybe? <laughs> 25. Yeah. yeah. 25? <laughs> Something like
0: that. Definitely why? In one a year. Yeah definitely yeah but we never did that one because mostly because i didn't want the hassle of it
2: yeah and because we didn't you try and get the permits a couple times and it just didn't work yeah i
0: don't fire. think so
2: i think you applied for them at least once well
0: last two years no last year we had a permit but then there were fires that
2: yeah yeah, yeah and the air quality was a low 400
0: well then yeah. it was so bad they closed the entire park mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah so so far the only problem we've had to deal with is. North of a hundred degree heat weather. Yeah, and hangovers.
2: And hangovers. <laughs> well, that's
0: just life in general. Um, okay, so we think we're gonna make it this time,
2: though. I sure hope hey, so. All right, I Good. brought my parachute for the top. Nice.
0: Oh, oh my god, face jumping! <laughs> Heck yeah. Feeling.
1: <laughs> it's like the pre. When, when was the last
0: time you went backpacking?
1: I don't remember. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh. 2017, I think. That's what we decided. I'm trying to remember. Where did we go?
2: To the canyon.
0: Canyon Creek in the Trinity Alps. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Before, yeah. before our trek in uh, Europe. Okay. Oh,
2: yeah. I guess the trek kind of sort of counts. It's not camping.
1: Though. I it's thought yeah. it counted. That was, that was
0: Oh, tough the hiking, hiking counts. Yeah. yeah the hiking was tough. Okay. Yeah. So you... Excited, nervous, nonplussed.
1: Um, I, I'm I'm a little nervous about the going up Half Dome. I'm glad that both of our kids made it to adult age before we did it.
0: Okay, that's good. So we yeah, it's not it's not our problem anymore if they get hurt.
2: <laughs> we get to sign I, our own wheels. No, like old enough to
1: not mess
2: around.
1: You know. <laughs>
0: all right so the heat's
1: the, gonna kill us
0: that yeah, i'm heat, worried about that too yeah so it was it was 113 degrees at 11 o'clock or 11 30 when we were about to head uphill from the central valley and it was 104 i think in yosemite valley today yeah. when we were there oh, yeah. although here in tuolumne meadows it's actually quite pleasant
2: thank goodness <laughs>
0: So let's talk about day one of the hike. You start at Sunrise Trailhead and you hike to the Sunrise Creek Junction. That is about 10 miles. The trailhead is at about 8,150 feet, 2,484 meters. And you are ascending for a good part of the day to get up to the summit of clouds rest, which is at 9,926 feet or 3,025 meters. As I said, Clouds Rest has an incredible 360-degree view and is worth it to go there. After Clouds Rest, you descend to Sunrise Creek, which is at the junction of the John Muir Trail and the trail that comes off of Clouds Rest. That is at 7,210 feet in elevation, or 2,197 meters. You might be wondering, why not camp in Little Yosemite Valley, which is a well-known camp area that has some amenities like Uh, Bear cans or bear lockers, I should say, and also has a solar pit toilet and is generally sort of an established campground. A couple things. First, they wouldn't let us camp there the first night because we started at Sunrise Trailhead and our permit didn't allow it. So I think if you start in Yosemite Valley and went uphill, you could get a permit to stay in Little Yosemite Valley in the backcountry camp there. But We didn't have that permit. We were coming downhill and we're not able to camp in Little Yosemite Valley the first night, though we could have moved there the second night to be a little bit closer to where we were heading out. But we didn't decide to do that. And there's a couple of reasons. One is that Little Yosemite Valley was a thousand feet or 300 meters or so lower uh, than where we were camped. And it was a mile and a half Further each way to go up half dome. So it would have made the half dome hike the next day longer and steeper. Also, Little Yosemite Valley has a ton of people and it doesn't really feel like the backcountry because of it, which might be fine for a lot of people. But for us, it was nice to have a true backcountry site with nobody right next to us and people with an earshot, but pretty dispersed camping. So I'm actually thankful that we didn't camp in Little Yosemite Valley. And for this trip, I do recommend camping at Sunrise Creek at the junction with the John Muir Trail. It's a really great spot to camp. It puts you in a very close proximity to the turnoff to Half Dome the next morning. So with that, let's listen to a little of my family's conversation after we climbed and descended from Clouds Rest and had set up camp in Sunrise Creek. So before a couple of days ago, had you ever heard of Clouds Rest?
2: No. Well, I heard of Clouds Rest the first time when we were going to do this hike last year. Oh. And then because of the air quality, it got canceled. So I did hear of it last year, but before that, I had not heard of it.
0: Okay. And so what did you think when we went up there today?
2: It was insane. You could see the majority of Yosemite from just the top of, I didn't realize it was higher than Half Dome, which was really cool. So you could see all the way past it. You can see all the way to the east, to the crest, I guess, of the Sierras. You can see Tuolumne Valley. You can see Yosemite Valley. It's beautiful.
0: Yeah, it's, it's probably, it has to be the best view in Yosemite. Yeah,
2: maybe one of those peaks that are way too hard to climb without any climbing gear might be slightly better, but you don't get the view of the valley that we got today.
0: I think it's also because it's centrally located. It's the spot, right? So you can, Like you said, you can see all the way down Yosemite Valley. Mm-hmm. From above. You're above Half Dome. And then you can turn around and you can see all the way, like you said, to the Sierra Crest. You can see Mount Kness and Mount Dana and Cathedral Peak and all these ones that are like the eastern part of the park. So it's it's basically a three hundred and sixty degree view of the park. It's incredible.
2: Yeah, it was really beautiful.
0: And then tomorrow morning early, we're gonna go up Half Dome, right?
2: Yeah. That's the plan. We're at a pretty advantageous spot right now, though, because we didn't have to go to Little Yosemite Valley. We're actually closer. We're only two and a half miles from the top of it, so it shouldn't be too long of a hike, even though I'm sure it'll be still brutally hard.
0: Yeah, we found a good campsite right at the junction of the trail coming off of Cloud's Rest and the John Muir Trail. And it's only a half mile from the turnoff to... Uh, half dome and then that's two miles uphill so it's only a five mile round trip from where we are camped right now
2: yeah we're fortunate to have found this camp so hey especially because we were gonna go down to sunrise creek and it was a little nothing creek and so the water source we have now is perfect
0: yeah it's a nice little creek fits our Not, needs it, yeah fits our needs to clean up and to get water and all that And it's cold water which is really nice because mm-hmm. it's been brutally hot it was easily over a hundred today. I feel, I feel like when we came down off of Clouds Rest and got into the afternoon and, and the exposure, it was pretty darn hot. It's still hot right now and it's almost seven o'clock at night and it's mm-hmm. still really warm. Yeah. So we went up to Clouds Rest today and we, it was seven and a half miles from where we started on the trailhead and it was about 2000 feet up.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It was pretty hard hike.
1: Yeah, it wasn't too bad. Just the heat the very end of the hike was kind of difficult,
0: yeah, the heat definitely made it more difficult, and we started even though we started at I don't know seven forty five in the morning when we were on the exposed uphill part, it was still pretty it was already pretty hot, yeah oh. so what did you think when we got up there?
1: The view is insane, best view of Yosemite by far, and I've hit another peak here.
0: Yeah, you and I went up Mount Caness a couple of years ago, and that was a pretty That's good true. view too, but it's all from one side. I mean, you had mm-hmm. a, the other side of that view is not into Yosemite. It's outside of Yosemite and toward Death Valley, which is cool too. Also very cool.
1: Um,
0: or at least toward the desert. But yeah. the view uh, from Klausros really is the entire park.
1: Yeah, that was insane. I feel like I had never seen the snaking valley before like it really looked like water but it was just trees if that makes sense
0: looking down yosemite valley from up yeah, there yeah
1: like you could really see how a glacier formed the whole thing you know
0: yeah and you could see the striations on the on the walls on the yeah. granite walls on both sides of the canyon you could really see how a glacier went through there
1: super cool all right
0: i have another question for you okay what did you think of all the uh little red spiders
1: they weren't too bad i don't know i killed a few so i knew who was boss but
0: <laughs> you gotta show them kind of like that they're lower on the pecking order than you
1: yeah and then if they see other dead ones maybe they'll be scared and leave but uh they stained my pack but besides that not too bad
0: that was the strangest thing we get to the top of cloud dress and there's all these little red spiders everywhere you think it was just like little red spider week when they breed or is this something that's oh, always no. going on up there
1: I'm not sure, but I know I've seen them other places before.
0: Yeah, I've seen those even in our house, I think, but they're, they're so small. They're these little tiny red ones where usually you only see one or two.
1: True. I know. It was weird to see like hundreds.
0: So a couple of years ago, you said, Dad, I want to go up Half Dome. It's true. And then we made a reservation for last September. And then there were terrible wildfires and Yosemite was closed. So we didn't come. Mm-hmm. And now here we are. And I said, well, why don't we do a trip where We do Clouds Rest and Half Dome, since I had done neither one. And we did Clouds Rest today and then Half Dome tomorrow morning. What do you think that's going to be like?
1: Um, I think really gratifying, especially like it's this huge rock that I've seen for years, like every time we come here. So it'll be nice to finally like go to the top.
0: Seems a little scary, I have to say.
1: I mean, yeah, but... Every a lot of people do it as long as we, you know, take our time and do it safely, it'll be okay
0: that's what I'm thinking
1: yeah we're not in a rush anyway
0: <laughs> no, and as we were saying before we're, where we are now, we're camped fairly close so it's actually a pretty easy hike from here as far as the amount of time it'll take.
1: Yeah, I'm excited about that aspect, just to beat the crowds and everything, that'll be the easiest way to do it
0: Yeah, that's gonna be good, I hope. Yay! And it should be warm weather again, so even if we go early, it shouldn't be that cold.
1: Mm,
0: perfect. All right, well, we'll check back in tomorrow and see how it went.
1: Okay. Ooh, tomorrow's the day. I'm excited.
0: All right. Day two. Day two is just a day hike. It's the hike to Half Dome to the summit and back. It's only five miles round trip, uh, but you go from that junction at just over 7,000 feet to 8,836 feet or 2,693 meters. Of course, you've got the cables. You've got to climb the cables of Half Dome, which to me, when I originally thought about the cables, I thought, Well, the Park Service lets people do this. They put these cables up there. So it must be safe. It must be well thought out. Uh, After having done it, I don't believe that. These cables are just that. They're just cables hanging off of a cliff. And it's pretty vertical. And there are these boards that go across every so often, but not not in exactly regular intervals. There's some of them missing. So... Um, I have to say that climbing Half Dome on the cables was actually a little bit more of an ordeal than I had expected, but still worth doing and was fun. And it was cool to be on the summit. It was cool to stand on what's called the diving board where you're way out on this point hanging out over Yosemite Valley. It was worth doing, but definitely not an easy ride. And my wife, Andy, upon seeing the cables, decided not to do it. And I respect that decision and have no problem with it and fully understand it. (laughs) It's not something I would push anyone to do if they're not comfortable doing it. In fact, when we were climbing up the cables, there was a woman who basically got stuck part way up and was afraid to go up and was afraid to go down. And her boyfriend went to the top and I guess came down after us. So I don't know how long she ended up sitting there, but she was sitting there getting a sunburn, basically not moving. And nobody wants to end up in that position. So If you're afraid of heights, if this kind of adventure is not for you, climbing Half Dome is just what it sounds like. It's climbing. It's not hiking. So that last few hundred feet takes a lot of gumption to do. And to be clear, there is risk involved in climbing Half Dome. As of 2019, there had been 290 accidents in the last 15 years, and 13 of those resulted in deaths. Uh, Since 2005. So in just over 15 years, at least 13 people have died trying to climb the cables on Half Dome. And if you fall, it's basically a 500-foot drop, and that's pretty much it. While we were up there, we saw a guy drop his GoPro while he was on the cables, and it tumbled down the cliffside, and it gave us just sort of a brief glimpse of what it might be like if something bigger, like a person, fell. There used to be, before 2010, up to 1,200 people a day climbing the cables on Half Dome. But then they instituted a a 300-person-a-day limit, which is the limit now. But a 2018 study showed that there has been no impact on accidents and fatalities by having the limit. So it hasn't reduced fatalities, it hasn't reduced accidents. And some people theorize that it might have increased them because people, once they get that precious permit... That's hard to get, feel like they really need to go to the top rather than making the smart decision, uh, maybe when they're not comfortable doing the climb, to not do it. There certainly has been an impact on the enjoyment in climbing Half Dome by having less people on it. So you're not in a tight line of people, of hundreds of people going up and down anymore because you have a few hundred people spread throughout the day. Um, So it's certainly a more uh, enjoyable climb, but not a less dangerous one. In any event, uh, my experience on this is that there's certainly risk, but that if you are careful and take your time and don't try to do really stupid things like take a cell phone picture while you're climbing the cables, uh, you will be okay. But also only if you're someone who's comfortable doing this kind of thing. And if you're not, you really shouldn't try to do it because it really is not a ride at Disneyland like a lot of the people climbing it seem to think it is. It's a real mountain, it's real granite, and there are real consequences if you don't take care. I recommend you get there as early as you can in the morning and, and camping in Sunrise Creek is a good way to do that because the earlier you get there in the morning, the less likely you are to have to deal with crowds of people coming up from the valley. We got there I think just before the crowd started showing up and it made the the climb a lot easier. You can climb uh, with a harness if you buy one of the harnesses that people use for, The Via Ferretta hikes in Italy where they climb these ladders in the mountains in the Dolomites, they sell these harnesses that are made for clipping into those ladders and some people do use those on Half Dome and it definitely, you will definitely feel more secure doing that, but I'm not sure how much it really makes a difference. The the cables themselves are not fixed in the same way that uh, the, the ladders are in Italy. The cables... Well, they're not going to come off the mountain, you could end up swinging and swaying quite a bit because the, the sort of uh, poles that the cables are attached to are just pushed into a hole in the rock. They're not fixed, and they can come out. Um, like I said, they take them down every year in October. So in any event, uh, look online and think about whether a harness makes sense for you if you're uh, worried about doing this, and also think about whether doing it at all makes sense. After the climb, though, we... Felt pretty good about it. And we had a relaxing afternoon in camp, taking turns napping in the hammock. And here's a little audio from that afternoon and that evening in camp. So what did we do today? We climbed
2: Half Dome. Nice. And how was that? It was really fun. It was crazy, though. Especially the last part. The yeah. the ropes.
0: The cables? The cables, yeah. Yeah. Oh. So what did you think, before we got to the cables, what did you heard about them, and what did you think they were going to be like?
2: Well, we saw them from clouds rust, and that was pretty intimidating, because it looked pretty straight up, which turned out to be a, a pretty accurate. Um, <laughs> but... Other than that, I knew a few friends who have gone up and they said it was really difficult, but worth it. Um,
0: so once you got to them and then you started, like, I, how did you feel at the bottom looking up, thinking, what's this going to be like?
2: I was. I, I'm glad we left when we did because I was contemplating not doing it because it looked pretty intimidating. But I'm glad I did, even though it was intimidating and difficult.
0: Yeah, I have to say, I had this picture in my mind that they let hundreds of people go up this thing every day so it must be safe and then when we got there and started doing it i thought this is not safe Mm-mm. yeah it and surprises I,
2: me how many people go up there that's crazy. yeah
0: and i thought this is a risky endeavor <laughs> and obviously if you're careful and thoughtful 100 percent of the time you're going to be fine but not everyone is careful and thoughtful 100 percent of the time so uh yeah i was surprised by how um steep it was and how little you had to hold on to and for
2: many people like if they don't know about backpacking in general like it's a pretty i wouldn't say famous but it's a pretty standard first backpacking trip for a lot of people to go to little or little yosemite valley and then to go all the way up and for a first trip that's freaking nuts
0: yeah well not only that but 90 percent of the people are more i'm just making that number up but a good (laughs) chunk of the people are more are just doing it as a day hike from the valley. Most people up there are not backpackers. That's true. true. As
1: a day hike, I think I would be too tired to do the cables.
2: Yeah, we lucked out in where we're set up where we have it pretty much as easy as it could possibly be and it was still a brutal day hike.
0: So describe where we are, where are we camped?
1: Two and a half miles from Half Dome.
2: Yeah, Yeah, a little bit uphill from the turnoff to Half Dome where most people who start at Little Yosemite Valley are 1,000 feet downhill from it, and what, like a mile, a mile and a half downhill from it. And so for most people, it's like 3,500 feet of elevation gain well, plus. That's
0: that's if you're staying as a backpacker in Little Yosemite Valley. If you're yeah. coming from the actual Yosemite Valley, it's a it's much deeper, it's like 4,800 or yeah, something. Yeah, it's almost 5,000 feet. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy.
1: <laughs> that's such a rough day.
0: But as a backpacker, if you were to
2: do it as a backpacker, most people would stay at Little Yosemite. And that's like, what, 3,000 feet of elevation or something like that. Where from where we're staying, it was only 1,700,
0: 1,800. Yeah, yeah. We are we are at the junction of the John Muir Trail and Sunrise Creek. And up above that, there's a nice campsite we found.
2: Yeah, it's the trail that goes to Clouds Rest that's
0: yeah we came down at the junction to the trail that's right the junction of the trail that comes down from clouds rest because we came down from clouds rest yesterday and we found this campsite and then today we were thinking about after doing Half Dome whether to move but we had lunch we were all tired we napped we got cleaned up and i'm glad we stayed because little yosemite valley is a pretty busy place and here we have a few people come by now and then but pretty much have it to ourselves
2: yeah it's a nice campsite we have good water access it's comfortable once the shade cover came in
0: yeah that's another thing that we've been saying about this trip it's just been ridiculously hot weather uh unfortunately but we've figured out how to do it which is basically do everything early and then stay in the shade in the afternoon Mm -hmm.
1: but that was like the perfect amount of break before we went out taking a little
0: break before we went up that just was better
1: just like, like recenter and go up like sharp minded but any longer I, I I don't know
0: yeah i think that's right i think if you get up there just before the cables and you just sit down have some water have a snack give yourself a few minutes collect your wits then it's a little bit easier to just uh start going up mm-hmm you wanted to do this hike, Justin, since you were a little kid. I remember you calling it your rock when we came to Yosemite when you were four or five years old. You are now 18, and it took you this long to finally do it. So what do, yeah. you, what do you think?
2: I'm glad I waited this long, honestly, because I saw some kids coming up the trail who were planning on doing it. I was just thinking, like, that's that's got to be nuts if you're nine or ten years old trying to do that cable part. That's brutal.
0: As a parent, watching
1: your well, 10-year-old do that, too. That, that's the
0: other thing. You guys are adults. Not that I want to see you get hurt up there, but you guys are making an adult choice about whether you want to do this or not. In fact, you guys wanted to do this and got Mom and I to come out here with you. mm mm-hmm. um, So, you know, this was something you chose to do. If you're a 9 or 10-year-old kid, you don't think you really know what you're getting into.
2: Yeah, that's true. But I, am, I have wanted to do this forever, and so... That's something that's on my on my bucket list checked off. Cool. Yeah. Next up, Taj
0: Mahal. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so our last day, day three, was Sunrise Creek to Happy Isles, and that's a downhill hike from about seven thousand two hundred and ten feet to four thousand feet. Four thousand feet's at about 1200 meters, 1220 meters. And there's not a lot to say there. You get a good view of Nevada Falls on the way down. Um, But that's a pretty common day hiking area. And you see quite a few people heading down that way. You can either go down the John Muir Trail or the Mist Trail. So day three from Sunrise Creek down to Yosemite Valley at Happy Isles is about seven miles. That's about 11 kilometers. So you put it all together. You've got Roughly 10 miles or about 16 kilometers on the first day, five mile day hike, which is about eight kilometers on the second day, and about seven miles downhill on the third day, which is about 11 kilometers for a total of somewhere between 22 and 23 miles and roughly 35 or 36 kilometers. Well, there you have it. So I hope you enjoyed my description of the hike and the conversations my family had while we were on the trip. And I hope my family and I have inspired you to hike this Half Dome and Clouds Rest backpacking trip. And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. Before we go, let me remind you to think about buying... Outdoor herbivore backpacking meals. We use them on this backpacking trip. They're vegan and vegetarian backpacking meals made from quality ingredients. But as I always say, you don't have to be vegan or vegetarian to enjoy them. They taste great either way. And they have a lot of calories per serving, a lot more than most backpacking meals, which most backpacking meals are woefully inadequate in the calories that they provide. And they claim to be two servings when they're really one. That is not the case with outdoor herbivore. Trails Worth Hiking listeners get a 10% discount on their order. Enter the discount code TWH10P, so Trails Worth Hiking 10%, to get your discount on Outdoor Herbivore Backpacking Meals. Outdoor Herbivore at OutdoorHerbivore.com. Check them out. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we go to a remote wild coastline. We spend a week walking and camping on beaches and hiking through temperate rainforest. This requires not just hiking, but climbing ladders, crossing rivers on hand-operated cable cars, and taking ferries. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we take our first trip to Canada, to the wild, wet west coast of Vancouver Island in British Columbia, where we travel the West Coast Trail in Pacific Rim National Park Reserve. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode, or ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest, and talk about a trail that you've hiked, reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So start planning your next hike, and before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening.